I've entitled my message this morning, The Impossibility of Salvation. Last week we looked at the encounter Jesus had with the rich young ruler who wanted eternal life. I mean, he really wanted eternal life, but he wanted to do it by doing something good in order to get it on his own terms. But Jesus asked too much, if you remember. Jesus wanted everything, and the man walked away sorrowful because he wasn't willing to give up his wealth. His wealth was more important to him than a relationship with God. And after the young man leaves, following in Matthew 19, Jesus uses that particular conversation that he had with that man as a teaching moment for his disciples. And he, and he draws them away, or they walk, walk away. And we read in Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 to 29, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And Peter answered him, Oh, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Now there's a verse in Proverbs which kind of sums up the whole lesson that uh, Jesus is teaching here in Matthew. And it's found in chapter 13, verse 7. Proverbs 13, 7. One pretends he is wealthy, but has nothing, while another seems to be poor, but has great wealth. It's a paradoxical statement. It doesn't seem to make sense. Now, we know that the Bible has a lot to say about wealth. We know the Bible has a lot to say about poverty. The rich young ruler was a tragedy. Uh, he fits into the category of Luke fourteen thirty three, where Jesus said, Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. That depicted the rich young ruler. And what he held on to, the, the, the young man, was self-righteousness and possessions. He could not come to the point of repentance for his sins. He could not come to the point where he could affirm the lordship of Jesus Christ and following him completely and submit himself to that no matter what the cost. It wasn't that he didn't understand that he needed it. In fact, he wanted it. But the problem for him was that the price was too high. And out of that conversation comes some profound teachings about true riches. Let's look first of all at the poverty of riches. The poverty of riches in the first few verses, 23 to 26. When Jesus had his disciples to himself again, and while that conversation, conversation with the young man was still fresh on their minds, we read, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard, it is difficult. For someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's not a new teaching. 
from, from Jesus. Uh, we must be willing to give up anything and everything for Jesus. You remember when we studied back in Matthew chapter 10, in verse 37, where Jesus says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will fulfill it. Taking up a cross, of course, means that we are willing to go to the extreme of even dying for Jesus, if that is what he asks. Now, Jesus says, you've, you've got to abandon everything, even your life, if I require it. I may not, but you've got to be willing to do that. Now, in this case, it was riches and wealth and prosperity. The young man was not willing to forsake all and follow. The price was just too high. So Jesus draws this conclusion. It's truly, I tell you, it is hard. It's, it's difficult for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. So how difficult is it? Well, the answer comes in the next verse. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Again, I tell you, he says, Jesus is saying, let me rephrase that. Let let me say it in a different way. Let me clarify for you what I mean by it is difficult. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. How difficult is it to stick a camel through the eye of the needle? It's really difficult. In fact, it's impossible you can't put a camel through the eye of a needle. Says, ah, but pastor, Jesus isn't actually taught referring to the eye of a needle. He's referring to a little door in the Damascus gate of the city of Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. And when the gates are closed, people could uh, step through that small entrance without having to open the gate. And so there's a possibility if you squeeze hard enough. Yeah, that's the story. That's the story we hear. But did you know that there is no archaeological or historical evidence for the existence of a gate with that name? It's not there. Apparently, this story got started back in the 15th century, perhaps even as early as the 9th century. However, according to a commentator by the name of Leon Moore, some of you may have heard his name and many others as I was checking to verify There is no widely accepted evidence for the existence of such a gate. Now, Jesus was not talking about a literal gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle that camels could squish through if you took out enough of the baggage and everything off of them. This was a colloquialism. This was an idiom. This was a a proverb that people used. Everybody understood it. It's even in the Talmud in Persia, and later on it was actually used in the Quran um, as well. The idea that Jesus talking about a small gate that was very difficult to get through is actually pretty convenient for Christians, if you think about it, or other people. It means that though it's not easy, you may have to unload a few things along the way, but it's possible if you try hard enough to get into the kingdom. That's what that would have meant. If you're willing to make the necessary sacrifices. But that's not what Jesus' point is is at all. It never was. It can't be. That would mean that we could squeeze into the kingdom if we tried hard enough by working at it hard enough, by doing enough good things. No, he meant what he said. He was being hyperbolic and humorous. The thought of a camel going through the eye of a needle is ridiculous. In fact, it's impossible. And that's the point that Jesus was making. 
One author uh, wrote, it's like an elephant on a springboard diving into a cup of water, or a giraffe doing a limbo under the three-foot-high stick, or an elephant getting into the driver's seat of a smart car. How difficult is it for rich people to get saved? It's impossible. You know what this is saying? Right. It's impossible for rich people to be saved. Wait, what? No, impossible? That's what Jesus said. It's impossible. Just as impossible as sticking a camel through the eye of a needle. Now, the disciples understood exactly what Jesus said. It was shocking to them. That's why they immediately asked, well, who then can be saved? So you may ask, so what do you mean it's impossible? There must be a catch. There must be something going on here. Well, it's impossible to be saved when you come for salvation on your own human terms. It is not possible for a rich man to save himself. In fact, it's not possible for any person to save themselves. You can't make enough sacrifices. You can't unload enough baggage or enough habits to squeeze in. You can never do enough good things. You can never be good enough to be accepted by God. Why? Because all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what happens here is in one brief, pithy statement is that Jesus eliminates all works and all righteousness systems. He eliminates all man-made salvation. In the example of the rich young ruler, when he was insisting on coming on his own terms, it became impossible. Jesus saw his heart. So if that's true of everybody, why is Jesus picking on the rich here? That just doesn't seem fair, right? Because it's more impossible, if that's possible for the rich to enter into the kingdom. Why is that? Well, I think there are at least three good reasons for that to be true. Now, these are generalizations. I understand that. And there are exceptions to the rule, but usually only by God's grace. First of all, rich people often have a false sense of security. They have a false sense of security. In their minds, they don't need God because they've got all their resources. They can buy anything they need. They can buy their happiness. Uh, There's no need to depend on God. You remember hearing about the city of Laodicea? In Asia Minor, it was the wealthiest of all the cities in the area. Apparently, back in 60 AD, there was an earthquake and the city was literally leveled. And the Roman government commissioned some emissaries to go to Laodicea and say, hey, the government will give you money to help you rebuild the city. But they said, you know, we don't want any money from the government. Not a bad concept. We'll rebuild it ourselves. But that became a prideful thing for them. And the pride of Laodicea was that they raised the entire city out of the ashes without taking a dime from the Roman government. And that attitude, unfortunately, spilled over into the church of Laodicea, which became the lukewarm Laodicean church that Jesus wanted to spit out of his mouth in Revelation. And when Jesus wrote them a letter in Revelation chapter 3, he said this, You Laodiceans say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need anything. This is the church folks saying this. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
See, rich people, people who have all the resources in and of themselves, tend to feel smugly complacent and very easy to become proud. And Paul gives Timothy instruction as a young pastor in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. There's that pride thing. Nor to put their hope in wealth. That's the whole security thing, which is so uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. This is historically a particular problem for rich people. It's been this way forever, uh, to trust in their uncertain riches because they don't need God. And Paul says, command them, there in 1 Timothy 6 again, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Why do you tell a rich person that? Because if he's not willing to do that, and use his wealth that God has blessed them with, then the rest of the gospel really doesn't matter because they are so focused. That becomes their idol. That becomes their God. This goes back to our lesson of the rich young ruler from last week. He's not willing to submit everything to the lordship of Christ, so the rest of the gospel had no meaning for him. Again, Luke fourteen thirty three: Those who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, when we come to Christ, we come on His terms and His terms alone. And those terms are self-abandonment to Jesus, forsaking all and following Him. It doesn't mean that He's going to take it all away from us. He may give it back, like He did with Abraham, way more than we could ever handle. Or like Job, giving back more than God ever demanded from him. But the issue is not whether he will or he won't. It's whether we are willing to let him do what he will, submitting to his lordship. The second thing that we see take place with those who are very rich, they often are tied to this world. If we go back to 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, we read, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Why didn't he just say godliness is great gain? Isn't that gain enough? I mean, you read all through Scripture, that's, that's our gain, right? Christ, preaching Christ. He counted, Paul counted all his gain. Well, because Paul knows that most people in our materialistic society aren't content because they always want something else. They want something more that they don't have. So he says in verses 7 and 8, For we brought nothing into the world, we take nothing out of it. Now listen, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. One of the questions this morning is, have you learned that contentment? Have you learned that contentment in Christ? If we can't be content in the Lord in our present circumstances, always seeking something else that money can't provide, we've got our eyes off the mark. We've, got, we've gotten our heart off of the Lord. For the love of money, Paul says, is the root of all kinds of evil Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. See how that draws you away from Christ? And pierce themselves with many griefs. That's exactly what that does. Makes us wander from the faith, wander from Jesus, and we begin looking for pleasure, happiness, contentment, fulfillment from the things of this world. And Jesus says very clearly in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there's where your heart is also. You remember in the parable of the sower when, when the word was thrown out like seed on the soil? 
And some were sown among the thorns. And Jesus says this in Mark 4.18, Like seed sown among thorns, they hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So it's impossible for the rich because in their humanness they are tied to this world and they live and die for the possessions of this world and they trust in those as their security. You know the biggest fool in the Bible is a rich man (laughs) found in Luke chapter 12. That's what God calls him, a fool. It says, and he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yield an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my my crops. Seriously? He couldn't think of what he could do with this excess of crops. There weren't poor, uh, poor and needy people that he could help, help out. No, this self-centered, egotistical, rich person came to his own self-serving conclusion. Then he said, ah, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and make bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. That's what the very wealthy want, right? An easy, convenient life. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. All you have to do is look at many of of the multimillionaire Hollywood folks and their lifestyles, many of the multimillionaire sports icons, even many of our spoiled multimillionaire self-serving politicians. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So they tend to trust in their riches and tend to be tied down to the world because of that. And thirdly, they tend to be selfish. I read about a guy who works for a multi-multi-millionaire. He said uh, the guy's probably worth $300 million uh, or more. He said there's three things about him. And I've worked for others, other ones as well, he said. And they all have three things in common. One, they're very, very rich and capable of getting richer. Two, they're very eccentric. And three, they are all extremely selfish and self-centered, end quote. Again, nothing new here. Remember the story of the rich man Lazarus? In Luke chapter 16, the rich man, during his lifetime, he indulged himself on all the pleasures uh, and luxury possible while Lazarus lay there in the gutter with dogs licking his sores, just begging for some crumbs. And the rich man enjoyed his life for a few years and spent eternity in hell. Well, Lazarus had a fairly miserable life for a few years and spent eternity in the arms of Jesus. The world is full of people who indulge themselves. So it's impossible for rich people to be saved, which is manifested in the love of money and the love of possessions. And here in our passage, Jesus is warning his disciples in the strongest terms uh, possible um, about this. And the rich young ruler was a prime example. That's, That's why he used him as an example. He was right there. Now, this was a fairly shocking statement, not only for the rich young ruler as he walked away sorrowfully, but also for the disciples. You know what the rich young ruler had been taught? The rabbis taught this. Never give away more than one-fifth of what you possess. To do so is unlawful and sinful. Boy, 
They even had to make a law so they could be holy and still be selfish, right? You see, the justification for this concept was that the more wealth you accumulated, that one-fifth, that's going to get bigger. And so you can give more away. And part of that concept also was that this was a way that you could pay for your sins. Listen, did you know that uh, in some of the Jewish writings, there are, there are things like this. <coughs> Excuse me. It is good to do alms rather than treasure up gold. Okay, not bad. For alms will deliver from death, and they purge away every sin. They also say alms will atone for sin. The Talmud says almsgiving is more excellent than all offerings and is equal to the whole law and will deliver from the condemnation of hell and make one perfectly righteous. That was in their minds. This is what they had been taught. This is what they understood. So the more money you had, the more your one-fifth would get, right? And the more you could give, and the more you gave, the more you purchased salvation for yourself. So the richer you were, the easier it was to be accepted into heaven. But now here comes Jesus. It blows them out of the water, shocking them with a statement, saying, the richer you are, the harder it is to get into heaven. In fact, it's impossible that way. How did these disciples react when they heard this? Listen, verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? They were blown away. They didn't make, that didn't make any sense to them at all. The rich could buy all the sacrificial lambs that, uh, that they wanted to. They could atone for anything and everything. They had money they could give away to the poor as alms and have their sins forgiven. But Jesus says the very opposite. It's impossible. No wonder James says in James chapter 5, verse 1, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming to you. The disciples were amazed and they asked this question, Who then can be saved? I don't get it. And verse 26 tells us that Jesus looked at them. It's kind of an interesting phrase there. The Greek dictionary describes it as to observe fixedly, to discern clearly, to behold, to gaze upon. So I think Jesus paused and turned to the disciples and just kind of looked at them for a moment. And I think as he looked at them, they knew something profound was going to happen here. He was going to say something that was going to be, be shocking. And he said, with man, this is impossible. What's impossible? Salvation. That's why I entitled the message, The Impossibility of Salvation. It's impossible to be saved on human terms. Can't do it. We can't overcome our own sinful nature. Rich people can't get over uh, the dependency on riches, the love of things in the world, and the consumptive uh, selfishness that characterizes that particular kind of life. They can't of their own accord do it. With men, salvation is impossible. But, you know, I am so glad Jesus didn't put a period there. He then says, but with God, what? All things are possible. Yes, just for the record, even rich people can be saved. It's tough, perhaps tougher than most, but with God, even that is possible. Why does it have to be God? Because God's the only one that can change the heart. He can change any heart. I'm sure you remember reading in John chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, Yet to all who did receive him, including rich, 
Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. God has to do it. You know, so often when we go out and try to share our faith, uh, try to evangelize and share our faith and, and try to get people to, to come to the Lord, we, we try to argue the points of salvation, trying to convince people that they need the Lord. But folks, that's not our job. We are to share. That's our job. We are to show Christ. That's our job. Paul, again, in his instructions to Timothy, writes, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, don't sit there and argue the point, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents, unbelievers that, that you're perhaps getting into some kind of argument with, opponents must be gently instructed. That's our requirement. Must be gently instructed in hope, what? That God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of truth. It's all God. Remember Jesus saying, no one can come to me unless the Father sent me draws them. Now at the beginning of the message we read Proverbs 13, 7. It starts by saying one pretends he is wealthy and, uh, but has nothing. That's, that's the rich man, that's the, the rich of the world and uh, the worldly wealth that's uh, binding them, holding them, that they can't give up, they can't uh, use to purchase eternity. And then the second part of that verse says, while another seems to be poor but has great wealth. One commentator described that as the riches of poverty. The riches of poverty, and that's the lesson that Jesus teaches the disciples in the last few verses of this passage. In verse 21, uh, excuse me, verse 27, Peter, speaking for the rest of the disciples, responded, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Again, in the Greek, the word behold is used. It's a word of exclamation. Something is dawning on Peter here. Perhaps for the first time, he was having an aha moment. All their lives, they had been taught that riches were the way to heaven and to salvation. So for most of them, as poor fishermen, they only had a slim hope, perhaps, of salvation and entering into the kingdom of heaven. But now Jesus says the rich can't get into heaven by means of their riches because they refuse to give it up. This is where the dawning takes place. Behold, oh my goodness, he's thinking, we've given everything up, just like you said. We've left everything to follow you. I mean, we dropped our nets. We left our tax tables. We, we said goodbye to our employment. We said goodbye to our family, goodbye to all of this. We left everything to follow you, just like you're saying. And I think his question was actually a legitimate question. What then will there be for us? I don't think this was any kind of egotistical or prideful question. I think it was actually wondering because this was never really a possibility in their minds. This rich guy kept all of his riches and he loses eternally. We've abandoned everything in our life. What, what do we gain? And I think he's excited for the very first time about what the possibilities might be. And he wants to hear from Jesus. So tell, tell us. And I think Jesus just blows them away with his response. The disciples could never have imagined in a million years what Jesus was about to say. It exceeded all of their expectations. Look, verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, 
At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine these fishermen (laughs) trying to wrap their minds around that concept? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things. What is he talking about there? The Greek word he uses is polygenesia, the regeneration, the renewal of all things. It's a statement referring to the millennial kingdom, the regeneration. Now that term is only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, where it talks about personal rebirth, personal regeneration, our new birth, we have been born again. It says in that verse, he saved us through the washing of rebirth, polygenesia. But here in Matthew, Jesus says there is going to be a rebirth, same word, polygenesia. It's not a personal one, though. It's a rebirth of the earth. It's a restoration of the earth. It's a millennial kingdom that he's referring to here. So in that rebirth of the earth, it's actually a perfect parallel, if you think about it, to the personal rebirth that we go through because we're born we're, 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 uh, we're born and live in sin, and then we are reborn. We have the new birth experience, the polygenesia, individually. We're born again in Christ, but it's still not our future eternal experience. In other words, we are born again right now, but we haven't yet entered the final state. That's coming. And so it's used in the same way here. The earth will be reborn in its millennial definition and still be awaiting the new heaven and the new earth, which is the eternal state. So the analogy is consistent in both situations. And so Jesus is talking about the millennial kingdom when the Son of Man will sit on his throne of uh, of his glory. And we know that because Psalm chapter 2 says that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. They're going to be under his feet. Revelation chapter 9 says that he's going to be King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming to reign in glory and honor. He's coming to, to rule the earth for a thousand years. And the saints, the saints are going to come and reign with them. Daniel chapter 7 says the Old Testament saints will be there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 2 says the New Testament saints will be there. And if you read through Revelation, the tribulation saints are going to be there as well, reigning with him. And here it says that the apostles are going to be there on those thrones So all the redeemed of all the ages are going to be reigning in that time when the Lord sits on the throne of glory. When's that going to happen? That comes after the tribulation. We're going to be talking about that in just a few chapters of Matthew chapter 24. He comes in power and glory after the tribulation, sets up the kingdom of glory, and rules as the king of glory for a thousand years. And while he's doing that, the nation of Israel will be restored and the apostles will rule over and guide and lead and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's what Jesus is referring to here in Matthew chapter 19. In Acts 3.21, Peter, referring to the suffering of Jesus, makes this statement, Heaven must receive him, Jesus, until the time comes for God to restore everything. That's the restoration that Jesus is talking about. 
And this is a time, according to the prophets, when the Messiah will rule the earth, when Israel will be converted and restored to the land, when truth will dominate the earth, when righteousness will flourish, when peace will prevail, when joy will abound, when the Holy Spirit's power will be demonstrated, when Satan will be bound, Jerusalem is exalted, healing and and health will dominate, when the lion will lay down with a lamb, the desert will blossom like a rose, life will be long, the curse will be lifted. It's called the great millennial kingdom. Wow. And he says, in that kingdom, you 12, you 12 disciples will sit on 12 thrones. You'll be given places of rulership and judgeship over the 12 tribes of Israel. It's very clear. So to that question, what then shall there be for us? (laughs) Jesus blew him away. And the first thing was that we are going to share in the triumph of Christ. We're going to reign and rule with Christ. And that's amazing. 1 Peter chapter 2 says we're a holy priesthood, kings and priests, and we're going to reign and we're going to rule even uh, over the angels. The second thing that we're going to receive is more than we give up. More than we give up. Look at verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. What's he saying here? He's saying, look, when you come to Jesus Christ, you may have to turn your back on a relationship or relationships. There are often divisions within the family when one person comes to Christ and another doesn't. It might be between husband and wife. It might be parents and children. It might be brother and sister. A person may be disowned by the family uh, with a loss of even inheritance that there might be. Many people around the world have lost their lives because of their decision for Christ. We saw that video of the story of Amina. Whole family was lost. But Jesus says, if you've done that for my sake, you'll receive a hundred times as much. And I don't believe he's talking about in the future. Say, oh yeah, in heaven, yeah, it's probably going to take place. Because in Mark chapter 10, verse 30, it says, talking about the same, the same story here, for those who forsake everything, they, quote, will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. In this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, Jesus said in Mark. You see, when we receive Christ, we receive the whole full body of Christ. Mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, and homes all over the world. Amina from our video, huge family. She says, my family, as she was drawn in. You know, when you meet a Christian you've never met before, there seems to be a connection. Maybe you've been off somewhere on vacation and you run into another Christian. It's amazing how, immediate, how immediately that there's, there's a bond, isn't it? There may be a home to stay in if, if needed, perhaps care if you're hurt, perhaps a meal that, that is offered. When my wife and I were preparing for our first missionary trip to uh, West Africa, we had to go through a final... Uh, accreditation interview with headquarters staff and they squeezed us in it was going to be at the airport in Pittsburgh as they were flying through so we had to meet them at the airport they got a room and so we got in our car and uh, went went zooming down there and halfway down our transmission blew Uh, we were some little 
town in Pennsylvania where we were stuck in, and we had to rent a car. The only place that we could rent a car from was a place called Rent-A-Wreck, where they've taken wrecked cars, refurbished here, rent it. Had no choice. Okay, so we rented this car, and off we went, and we, we got there. We got there late, and we had a much shorter interview, which is always nice, because uh, they had a plane to fly, uh, catch, right? Um, but uh, did our interview, headed back home, and part way back home, the Renorec breaks down. The engine just seized up on us. We weren't too far from Butler, Pennsylvania, and I knew we had an Alliance Church in Butler, and so I... I, I I got the number for the pastor there. said, hey, here's our situation. He said, no problem. I'll come and I'll get you. And he took us home and put us up over the night, gave us, uh, obviously, meals and everything until we could figure out what to do the next day. I didn't, I didn't know him personally. I knew of him. But that's a connection that we have in the family of God. See, there's this family of people who love Christ, and when you come into that family, far more is gained than Christ ever asks us to give up. And then lastly, we, are, we who are in Christ will inherit eternal life. Same verse. And everyone who has, been, who has given up everything for Christ's sake will receive a hundred times as much now, as we, as we just talked about, and will inherit eternal life. Believers will be rewarded for all of eternity. They'll, uh, they'll enter into the fullness of what God has planned in eternity, the full inheritance that he has promised us. Romans 8.23 says, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 to 44, The body that is sown is perishable. That's what we are living in now. It is raised imperishable. Though we've been born again, we've we still got these perishable bodies. But when we're raised, we're going to have the imperishable bodies. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, and it's raised a spiritual body. In John chapter 3, verse 2, listen, this is great. Everything is great. Dear, dear, dear friends, sorry. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What a promise. That's coming. That's in the future. Listen. Ephesians 2, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. So to be poor in this life for the sake of Christ is to be rich. Rich in eternity with all that God could ever imagine to give to his beloved children. So we've got the choice, right? Rich now, poor forever. Poor now, rich forever. Jim Elliott, one of the missionaries who was murdered by the Alca Indians in Ecuador a number of years ago, wrote this, said this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Father, this morning we thank you for the promises of your word. It's amazing what, what, what we are going to inherit, what we are inheriting right now. We thank you for the family of God that we are a part of. 
And we sometimes, we, foolishly, we, we struggle sometimes holding on to what we have, holding on to our own wills, holding on to our, uh, to our own riches, and holding on to doing things the way we want uh, things to be done. And we're not looking into your scripture and saying, you know, if, if we give ourselves up to Christ, there's so much more to be had. And your will is always good, pleasing, and perfect. When are we going to learn? Father, I pray that you do this new work in our lives. And Father, if there is one this morning who is struggling with this concept and perhaps is on the verge, has been thinking about giving their life to you, but, but uh, there's, there's so much that they want to do on their own and they're, 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 they've got plans, they've got strategies. Father, I pray that this morning that you would just speak very strongly to their hearts and say, listen, None of that goes with you when you die. And it's only for a brief moment here on earth. But when you're willing to submit to me, when you're willing to give your life to me and everything about your life, then watch me work. Then watch me work. Father, I pray that you would work and do a new work. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.